Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Uh, my guest today, I am excited about uh, Robert Morton. As I often like to do, is I like to tell a, a, a story that has some kind of relation to uh, the person I'm interviewing. One of the things that a stand-up wants more than anything else in the world. And you can talk to any stand-up across the country, and I, I still do not believe it has changed, is they want that shot. They want that five minutes on a talk show that's the most respected talk show in my generation, which is The Letterman Show. And no matter what they get, no matter how many things they get in their life, they might get an hour special, they might get a film, they might get a television series, but the cherry on the top of the Sunday is doing a shot on Letterman. Because Dave is basically, in my mind, the transition from Johnny Carson in the talk show world. Um... He's a guy who just is the gold standard, the four seasons, the peninsula of talk shows. And I always wanted to get my artists on the Letterman show. And when I was in Boston even, and I was even, wasn't even managing people at the time, 
I would call Robert Morton what seemed like almost every week or every month, say, Robert, I will fly you down here. I'll get a car service. I'll do whatever you need. I'll put you up. We had just come to Boston and see X. Or when he, I was in New York, even when he was in New York, I would Robert, will you come down to the club? And it was always a battle to get Robert down because Robert was this, you know, he would, it almost felt like he was Hollywood on the East Coast. I mean, there was just something about him that, like, me on the call sheet was literally down below the parrot from Beretta, probably calling him. Who knows? But for some reason, he always treated me like I belonged, even when I didn't belong. And he would take those phone calls. And I remember when he'd come into Boston and I'd try to do everything I could to take care of him. And there'd be these old-time Boston comics that would go on. And they were amazing comedians in Boston. They were incredible because comedy came out of the bars in Boston. So every comedy club where these people performed on their way up had a bar had the Celtics game or the Bruins game playing in back, sometimes not even with the sound turned off. So you'd be in the middle of your set, you'd be doing a joke, and you'd hear this great applause break and cheer, and you'd think, boy, I'm killing up here. And then, of course, you know, Bobby Orr scored a goal or something like that. But uh, Robert came in, and he saw a lot of these people, and they weren't right for television. They just weren't right for inside the box. But they were amazing in the clubs. They would just be killing unlike any comedians you would ever see kill um and occasionally there was an artist that came on like a Stephen Wright who would get your attention because you could see how he could get in to the box and perform well and kick ass and so um I remember Robert went to a showcase a year after Jim McCauley from The Tonight Show had come into Boston, Jim McCauley was looking for colleges for, I believe, his daughter. And he came looking at comedians at a place called the Ding Ho in Inman Square, Cambridge, which was a comedy club slash Chinese restaurant in Boston. And he saw Stephen Wright and he saw... Uh, Barry Crimmins, Lenny Clark, who was on Rescue Me, um, a guy named Don Gavin, DJ Hazard, just these Jack Gallagher, these mainstays from Boston that were incredible. And he called Stephen Wright afterwards, and he um, asked him to be on The Tonight Show. And uh, Stephen ended up doing the show and very well and coming back again very shortly, like five days later. But there was one guy that Jim McCauley saw that intrigued him tremendously. He was like an 18 or 19-year-old kid. And he was just high energy, crazy character, brilliant material. But Jim, you know, he was a little more conservative and just wasn't willing to take the risk. But then you came to town, and I believe you saw this young man named Bobcat Goldthwaite. And you took the chance, and you put him on the show, and I'll never forget that night. It, it's ingrained in my memory, the panel, 
between Dave and Bob. Because Dave, it, it he always gave the appearance like he had no idea what was going to be happening. And, and in this particular case, I truly don't believe he did. Because Bob brought on an envelope with some pictures. They were crayon drawings, like as if of a five-year-old boy. And he said, Dave, um, I'd like to show you some pictures of me and my, my family. Um, and he pulled out the first picture. It was this drawing of like green all over the place with a house that was crudely drawn. And a little dog and a little stick figure. And he's like, oh, this is me in front of my house with, uh, with my dog Spot. Yeah, that Dave was like, oh, that that's nice, Bob. <laughs> that's that's it's really nice. Uh, then Bob pulls out another picture. Um, it's just the same picture, but in place of the dog, it's just this red crayon all over the thing. And Dave's like, what what picture is that, Bob? Um, this is me in front of the house with my dog after my dad hit him with the lawnmower. And Dave was just like completely like almost looked like the time when, you know, the guy, Christopher Glover kicked at him. I mean, he had this look on his face and he was like, OK, Bob, uh, listen, um, we're going to be right back with our next guest. And Bobcat said, um, Dave, you think we could go bowling sometime, you and I? And Dave said, yep, Bob, we'll go bowling. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. I am so excited. Uh, my guest today is an incredibly talented uh, executive producer and a guy who um, is a leader of men and women like no other I've seen. I've worked with him you, on many occasions. And um, it's just when you work with this man, it's like he walks on the set and it's like you say to yourself, there's a new sheriff in town. And um, you might know him the most from his stint on Late Show with David Letterman and the original incarnation as well. Uh, I believe he spent 15 years uh, working with Dave in that capacity and other capacities. And uh, one of the greatest, one of the greatest television shows in my life or my existence or anybody's existence. But he's gone on to produce so many other things. He worked on, uh, you know, uh, Chris Rock show. He's worked with uh, Wayne Brady, the show he did an, um, got an Emmy with on daytime television. He's worked with Drew Carey on his green screen show. He's worked with D.L. Hughley with Weekends on the D.L. 
Uh, he's the executive producer of uh, Carlos Mencia's show, Mind of Mencia. Um, work with Dimitri Martin. I mean, the guy has worked the Academy Awards uh, shows, that's executive producer the pre-shows. Uh, and recently, he was the executive producer of Dion Cole's Black Box and Lopez Tonight for TBS. So please welcome my guest today, good friend, Robert Morton. It's a pleasure to be here, Barry. All right. I like sitting on the big couch. This is I a... Feel, I feel honored. Very large couch. If this were a casting couch, it would be an orgy. Well, knowing how tall you are, Barry, this is your <laughs> casting couch. I'll see you at the trial. There you go. The um, It's so funny. I, I, I keep most of... And you talk about the shows that I've I've worked on. A lot of those are pre-DVD, pre-digital for sure. And I have... I go from three... I have... Three quarter inch, half inch DVD, and I keep all the shows that I've done in a closet in my garage, appropriately so. And I, I, I often refer to it as the Museum of Mediocrity. <laughs> it is not the Museum of Mediocrity. So I go in my closet. I have Viewmaster. That's how old I am. <laughs> it's pretty, uh, pretty weird. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Let's start way, way back. Um, where'd you grow up? And and tell me about your upbringing and the first moment that happened in your life where you said to yourself, I want to be in entertainment. I, I, I grew up in New York, uh, in Long Beach, New York, and I pretty much knew I was going to be in entertainment from as far back as I remember. I mean, I, I, I think there were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be in entertainment, and I wanted to own a candy store. And... and <laughs> Candy store was was really my preference, no. <laughs> and still is actually. Go figure. Um, and I knew I, I I just used to watch TV and listen to music, and and I had a a voracious appetite for. What for, did you What did you used to watch back then? Oh, I used to watch. I mean, I I it, it's so funny because I have a a seven year old daughter and a twelve year old daughter, and I think about my seven year old, and. I was watching news when I was a kid, and I was watching documentaries, and, and how kids today don't really do that anymore. I remember as a kid, well, I'll, I'll date myself, uh, I remember the, the Kennedy assassination, I was in fifth grade. And I remember being glued to the television set. And my f daughter's in sixth grade now, you know, we, don't, we wouldn't let her watch coverage of, of an assassin shooting a president. It's It's... It's too sensitive at this point. I, I don't know if it's the political correctness of, of, of where we are in, in it's life. Inter and it's interesting you say that because I thought to myself the other day, uh, and uh, taking a little detour on this, but this is important, I was thinking, what is it about our children? They're ahead in every single capacity, but what is it they're all behind in? And I figured it out. When we were a kid... We got to watch those things. We got, you know, it was like, uh, hey, mom, dad, listen, I'm going to Joey's house. Uh, where's that? Oh, it's three miles down the road through the woods, the mill yard, and you take a left, and I'll be there all day, and I'll come back for supper. And they're like, okay, no problem. Nowadays, you can't even, like, you, you, you're in the school with it's fenced off with locks everywhere, and you're looking around to see where your yeah. kid is. Yeah. And, and our kids, the only thing they don't have is independence that we had, and I wonder how that's going to affect them in terms of their careers and things oh, like it, that. Oh, it, it will absolutely affect them. They also, I mean, 
they won't be dealing, you know, by the time my kids are old enough. I always say that the, the, the best business people that came out of my generation were the drug dealers. Well, I that's mean, sort of like a candy store. I mean, all, I mean, all the drug dealers that I went to college with all became very successful guys. And it was about they had big business acumen. They had to be a high level of confidentiality. They were dealing with, with a lot of money. It was covert. I think that our kids today, that there's going to be no challenge. There's going to be no, you know, I, I mean, I go back to, to, to just knowledge of, of news and current affairs. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I always knew who the Secretary of State was. I always knew who the Secretary of the Treasury was, the Attorney General. I look at my, my 12-year-old, and she's a smart kid. doesn't have a clue. Does not have a clue what's standing. Does not have a clue, but yet has a thousand times more access to information. But anyway, go back. Well, which is which is always what I also talk about it whenever I talk about the next generation of people who are going to be in the television industry and the film industry. That well, if we wanted to watch a movie, if we wanted to see a Lubitsch film, you had to wait till it was in a theater or on, you know, a late night million dollar movie in New York. Uh, our kids could just, you know. Watch it instantly. Watch it's amazing. Anything. anything. But for some reason, you throw out a reference. You look at comedians today to throw out an old reference. It goes over heads. Yeah. It's amazing that, that the frame of reference is so limited with, with the access that they have. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. That's true, but go back. So tell me kind of some of the, besides the JFK assassination, what were some of the television programs that you would watch that inspired you to be in the business? I used to watch The Tonight Show. I remember watching The Tonight Show, The Sullivan Show. Ed you know, Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan, it was, it was uh, my favorite my favorite show. One of my favorite stories about that, and again, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to get it right, but for artists, sometimes artists, there's two different sides to every story with the manager of the representation, and, and I guess Jim Morrison and the Doors were on the Ed Sullivan show, and they, they trashed the dressing room, and the producer came to the manager of Jim Morrison and the Doors and said, they will never beyond the Ed Sullivan show again and the manager went up to Jim Morrison and said what the fuck are you doing now you're never going to be on the Ed Sullivan show again and Jim Morrison just looked at him and said we just did the Sullivan show we, we don't have to do it again we've already done it that's funny that's great <laughs>
that theater, I mean, I, that, that theater played a big part in my career. That's the theater that David Letterman went yeah, into. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a page at that theater. You were a page early on. Yes. So, I, wait, so okay, so you're inspired to do uh, the entertainment business. Then you... I, 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 was, I, I was telling you the other big show that influenced me over the years, and this will sound odd, the Jerry Lewis Telethon. I mean, I used to wait for that all year. It was, you know, and I'd watch for 19 hours. I wouldn't leave the television. How set. many times did you pledge? Would, huh? How many times did you pledge once, when you were a kid? Once. <laughs> Poor Jerry, all those years just for one pledge from you. <laughs> That's why he got fired. <laughs> the, um, but I, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be in variety television. So you're in high school and you're gearing up for college. You went to American University. Yeah. What was your major? TV production. Got it. So it's funny. I had gotten a job. I knew that I was going into comedy when I got a job at 15, 16 years old in the Catskill Mountains at a hotel. Which hotel? The Raleigh Hotel. Tell which, me some of the comedians that work there. Oh, my God. It, in it, the Catskill. It, you know, it's every, everybody. Every old, you know, names that you wouldn't know from Van Harris to Freddie Roman. Freddie Roman, of Dick course. Capri, Dick, Dick Capri. Dick Lord, uh, London Lee. You remember London Lee? I remember Dick Capri and Dick Freddie Capri, Roman. Dick Capri, London Lee, Freddie Dick Ro Arnell. Because Freddie Roman actually was one of the people who helped sell the roast to Comedy Central yes. when I was uh, He's a working. lovely man. Yeah. I still see him. He's, you know, he's, he's but, a very but the, nice But man. the Hackett's didn't show up there. Well, I met Hackett years later. I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know if you I know the story about me and Hackett. No, but I'm dying for it, but you got to take me through this first. Uh, so I, I knew, I used to make a pest of myself with all these comics and it always believe me years later it came back to haunt me when i'd get a call from you know whoever it was that i used to bug about hey let me give you a joke let me do that whatever it was you know now i'm producing the letterman show hey why don't you put me on that show and it's like oh, you know not quite right for, for the young audience it was weird but i uh, i used to go to the shows every night they it, for, for people who are young the Catskill Mountains was a place where you'd pay one price. It would be a nightly fee, you know, be it $110 a night for your room. You would get three meals of unlimited food. You could order, <laughs> you could look at the menu and order every main course on the menu. And yeah, it was like literally the Catskills were like a cruise ship without being on the water. Yeah, it really was. And they used to have shows. And the hotel that I worked at, the Raleigh Hotel, was owned by a Broadway producer whose name was George Gilbert. And he was very prominent in the early 60s, mid-60s, in, in show business in Broadway. He produced Sammy Davis Jr.'s first shows. So there was a rich showbiz tradition at, at this hotel. And they would have two shows a night. The first show would be an early show, which was probably on at about 9, if I remember correctly. And it was usually a singer and a comedian, or vice versa, comedian, open singing club. And then there would be a late show, which was always a dirty comedian. It's, it's. I remember, uh, big Lenny Schultz was was. was Lenny very Schultz prominent. was the chicken man who, yeah. um, we just. Uh, uh, Chris Albrecht was telling me about that was that was one of the first people he represented with Eddie Murphy, Billy Crystal, and uh, Jim Carrey, and Lenny Schultz was his one of his other clients. Yeah. No, and it's it's funny, and I knew Lenny from from there, when he used to do these you know one o'clock in the morning shows, and he used to start out with a small audience, and then after you know six months, the word got out that this guy's the craziest guy, 
he would fill a room, you know, one in the morning, packed nightclub of people coming to see And, him. you know, it, you talk about formulas and comedy and how things are and the way things work and sort of the recycled formulas. People think, like, when they see Def Jam or they see a show that's like a dirty comedy special, they think, hey, well, wow, this is one of the first ones ever, but... Back then, at the Catskills, that was the original, like, uh, nasty show from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. The Catskills, w w it was a crazy place because it was an old, it was predominantly, obviously, mostly Jewish, called the Borscht Belt. It was mostly Jews from New York City, uh, people who came post-war looking for cheap vacations. It was not an expensive place. But for some reason, it was driven by comedy and Latin music. Every hotel had a Latin band. And, that and probably, I don't know why that, no, Jews that probably, and Latin music are so closely associated, but they are. Oh, well, as John Stewart might say in a stand-up, he says uh, between uh, black people and Jews, he never understood why they couldn't get along because they, they shared the same pain. You know, but the only difference was that black people learned how to put it to music. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Latino, the the Latino thing came from I, I imagine the Lucy, uh, the Lucille, whatever you call it, the Lucy show with uh, with Desi Arnaz. Oh and no, the band it was way before that. It was way before that. What do you mean that show was on in the fifties? Well, I'm talking about you know Latin music in in the. 40s. No, I'm talking about at the when you were there at the Borscht. No, no, but I'm saying there was all, oh every yeah. Latin music was was the. I I often think of what the rhythm of 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 the Catskills was because it's really hard to explain. I try to explain it to my wife, who's younger and who came from California. I try to tell her about about what the Catskills were like, and you know they have a picture, but it's you can't express how how exciting it was, especially as a young kid. And tell me the first comedian you saw that went on in front of a crowd and just you know that because one of the things I've talked about is like. When I first listened to the first album, comedy album, that, that moved me was Bob Newhart. And when you listen to the album, it was so cerebral and there were so many titters of laughter. And it, it wasn't that he wasn't killing, but it was so, it was such like, it was almost like a, you know, at a yacht club. It's like, oh, that was nice, whatever. And the first time most everybody who is in our audience probably saw a crowd actually double over and and literally lose control of themselves physically is probably the early Def Jam shows mm -hmm. where a comic would go on and literally the audience was it was like the wave was going inside the crowd. But I know the Catskills were known for shows where literally people lost their minds in the audience. And who was a comedian, the first comedian you saw, where you saw a crowd just completely obliterated? Hackett, for sure. Hackett, Buddy Hackett. No, nobody comes close. He used to say to me that I always asked him, like, who is the uh, greatest comedian that you think ever lived? He said, me. No, he, he and, was and very proud of that. He told me that in 1953, he was making $175,000 a week in Vegas. That's how popular he was. And he said he did the, the first two HBO specials, which is probably true, yes. Yeah, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Oh, I remember him, well, well I, I met him when I was in college. And the, I remember the first time I went to Las Vegas, he was 
he, he said he was the executive vice president of the Sahara <laughs> Hotel, and they probably gave him a piece of the hotel for performing there. He was making that much money at the time, and on the top of the tower at the Sahara Hotel, I think the building's still standing, there was painted on, on the, the, the facade was, in, they, they were probably 10-foot-high letters. It said, Buddy Hackett. Whether he was working there or not, his name was on the hotel. <laughs> and it was the craziest thing ever. You just drive by the Sahara, and Buddy Hackett's name was, was up there. He was, he was wild. I mean, he, I met him, I, I was saying, I, I used to do a radio show in college similar to this. I'd interview comedians. And I got, you know, it's, it's when I first met Robert Klein and Hackett and George Carlin and Cheech and Chong. I used to, I had a relationship, I went to school in Washington, and there was a chain of, of, of theaters. You remember the, the music fairs. Yes. And there was a Westbury Music Fair, and there was one in Petersburg. Just, just so our audience knows, these theaters were predominantly in the round. They were outdoor venues, but they were tented off. And they were indoors, but they were normally in a tent. Some of them were built as facilities, but most of them And it were was a 360-degree arena, and the stage rotated. Always in the middle and rotated. And so there was never really a bad seat. You know, the comedians and the singers would have to, you know, be disoriented. I remember the road. They had to light up the single road to the dressing room, so they had some orientation where they yeah, were. Yeah, and you never knew where you were when you came around. And just to let you guys know... Uh, about something about in the round from another perspective that I learned when I did uh, the Dane Cook special and tour. It's a fascinating thing if you're on the other side of the business, if you're a promoter listening or somebody in the business who wants to get into this. When you're doing a regular theater that's a presidium, which means the stage is on the end and the seats come out. If you have an artist that, let's say, is selling three quarters of the seats, your venue is going to look empty or it's going to look very empty. But if you do a show in the round, what people don't understand is the seats around the stage are maybe there's 25 seats that go around the stage. And the next row, maybe it's 35. And the next row, 45. You get to the last row of the theater and you're in Madison Square Garden, that last row of the theater could be 2,000 seats. Could be 1,000 seats. So you can you can go into a place like Boston Garden or something like that, like Dane did, and God forbid you didn't sell out and you were 4,000 seats short. Literally, it might be the, the last five rows of the theater empty. And when you're looking out in the round, it's one of the most amazing things you can have as a performer. And these music fairs were incredible for performers. They learned how to perform in the round, and you were so close because what happens if you can visualize it if you're in a regular theater that just has a stage with a uh, backdrop and you're looking out, if you're at the halfway point of that theater, okay, that's a great seat. In the round, the halfway point in a regular theater is your worst seat that you can possibly have in the round. So when you do a show in a regular theater or any performers or promoters or anything like that, the last half of that theater that you're in, all those seats are shittier than the worst seat in a show in the round. And that's why those theaters were so popular, because you felt like you could touch the performer. Yeah, they were great. They were great. And it, and it was always fascinating to watch. You mentioned a, bu a Buddy Hackett working in the round, and hit the, the, you know, the, the bulk of his act was working with, with people in the audience. 
And he would always, you know, he'd pick on a lady and then he'd do another 20 minutes and he'd go back to the lady in the audience. Or, and it was amazing to watch him in the round because, you know, the woman would be <laughs> completely behind him and by the time the stage came around, he would know to go back to her and he, was, he timed everything by the rotation of the stage. And it was, it, was, it was masterful to watch. He really was. So tell me your first gig in the business. Uh, my first gig was as uh, I worked in school my first job was in 1972, so I've been doing this a long time. A long time. You look really good for a guy Thank who's going to be fitted for tennis balls on his walker soon. Very nice. Thank you, Farrah. <laughs> uh, I, I worked on a talk show in, in Washington, D.C. That was uh, an afternoon talk show, and it was hosted by Maury Povich, of all people. Wow. So I've, I've known Maury for close to 50 years, and I remember, <laughs> that sounds so weird to say, but I remember Maury was the first person I knew who was over 30. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is the coolest guy. And I was an intern on this show that he hosted. And he'd say, to, I remember he drove a Porsche. He was the first person I know to have a Porsche. <laughs> and also the first person who was 30 years old who I thought was really cool. And he'd do the show. It was on from 1230 to 2. He would finish the show. He'd take me in his Porsche. We'd go get lunch. We'd smoke a joint. <laughs> come back to work and i remember thinking wow how cool is this guy <laughs> and we we stayed friendly he he was he was a you know a big influence on on my early career and what came next then i i got out of school and i came back to new york now what what kind of existence were you living were you I mean, did you? You're interning. How do you survive? How do you? What kind of apartment did you have? What kind I of was life in, did I you have? I was I was interning. At the same time, I was doing two radio shows on my college station. Uh, I had a second internship. But were you living at home? Or no, in I was in, in New I York? was away. I was I had a, an apartment that I shared with friends. Stu Smiley being one of them. Stu Smiley, Stu of Smiley course, was the my, executive producer of Everybody Loves Raymond. He was one of my college roommates. And an we, ironic name for Stu Smiley, yeah. considering that he rarely smiled rarely at the smiles. time. And and we we were roommates in college. And then when we got out of school, he had transferred after his sophomore year, I think. And then we both got out and we stayed good friends. He went back to New York and got a job as a page at CBS. And he brought me in as a page. And so, that was at the Ed Sullivan and Theater. And that was, you know, at the Broadcast Center on 57th Street. And we used to you know, give tours and seat audiences and, you know, just do general usher duties. And usher, you don't hear about ushers anymore. No, you that's, don't. A, that's a word of the past. Although at SNL they have the pages. Yeah, but they don't, they don't use the word usher. Usher no, is, is a dying word. The, um, and we worked at the Sullivan Theater was one of the places that, that we had a page. And one of the assignments in the page core was you had to work the box office at the Sullivan Theater, which was the worst job giving out tickets, just sitting in this little box. And then... You, know, you mean that you're sitting in that... Uh, that uh, uh, the little clear, box the with clear the... clear cylinder The little the box middle? with the hole in the... And you used to have to just give Got people it. tickets to TV shows. I remember the clear cylinder ones where they had the clear cylinder... No, in the, those in the are the old movie theaters. Those were great. No, yeah. this, this, this was, was a very elaborate, beautiful... You know, it was a beautiful theater. When we, we were there, it was terrible. And then when Letterman came in in 1990. 92 I guess it was 
Now, how much did you have to do with the fact that of choosing the Ed Sullivan Theater? Well, I mean, it, it, when when Letterman was because Letterman did his show at eight eight uh, uh, Rockefeller six A six A and the same uh, set that Conan did his yes, at later yeah. same studio and Saturday Night Live was at, at the eighth floor eight A right, right yeah we uh, you know it was a it, it was a big decision to to go from a studio environment which is what we had done all those years doing the late night show and he was very much a studio performer i mean he used to walk out into the hallways he would go you know across the hall to to another show and disrupt the show so he was very much an electronic performer not a stage performer you know he had a background in stand-up and obviously did did work well, in front this, of audiences this is what was amazing about the, if i could just go back to the first incarnation of the show in the studio where you worked on you started there as what segment producer segment producer and I, I wrote all the interviews on the show wow so one of the i was I, I at first worked with another segment producer they they were usually two and then when that person became a writer i said give me his job and i'll i'll do all the interviews and you know, now shows have ten segment producers. I know, and you, it's and you did the them stupidest all. thing. I did them all every it, night. It was so stupid, crazy. What I wanted to allude to is that one of the things I always remember, and again, you being a lover of stand-up, Dave being a stand-up and started as a stand-up comedian. One of the things that shocked me about the Letterman Show more than anything else. It was set up in a way that was against the comedian. It wasn't a setup that was conducive to a comedian doing really, really well. There was an enormous amount of space between the comedian and the audience. The audience was raised up about six feet. There were cameras all in front. Some of the audience members in the front couldn't even see the comedian from the cameras. And so I always felt that if you did well on the Letterman show, you really were amazing because it seemed like you were so disjointed from the crowd, yet Letterman thought this was a great environment. No, that, was a, that was a, an environment designed for, for television. It was an electronic environment. It was not a proscenium stage. It was not, you know, and that was the biggest adjustment. And, and there was a man named Hal Gurney, who directed the Letterman Show for many, many years, and it was really his vision to take it out of a studio. And he was the first one to to really say, "Let's do it from a theater. Let's go to the Ed Sullivan Theater." And his instincts were were, were tremendous. And I must say, I I didn't think it was the greatest idea. As much as I loved that theater, I thought, you know, Letterman is is made for television. He's he's not a stage performer. You know, of course, I was wrong. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a That's lot. Why I'm about still it. there? We're going to talk a lot. <laughs> well, we might talk about that a little bit. So, so you go through. So you're there, and he's going to make the move. And you're, but you're there at the time of the craziest situation in talk show history, when you know he wants the gig for the Tonight Show. Lena wants the gig for the Tonight Show, but like most people in our business part of navigating the field is anticipating the crazy things that anyone would go to the lengths that they'd go to to get a gig mm -hmm. and in my mind i always thought that dave um 
and and he wasn't wrong in thinking this way. I felt that he was entitled to the Tonight Show. Certainly. And I think he felt, I can't speak for him, but I think he felt like he was entitled to the Tonight Show. And Jay, um, unbelievably, because you never, if you ever meet Jay, you never think of him in terms of the kind of guy. If, if you ever spend like an hour or whatever with Jay Lennon, you never think of him, at least myself, and I've been with him many, many hours of my life. I wouldn't think of him as a guy who's hiding in an electrical closet in a conference room. I, I, I just, no, I, you just, you can't, but he did it because, you know, I guess desperate times called for def- desperate measures, and he thought, I'm not going to get this gig, and I've been guest hosting for all these years, and I want this gig. And so he went the extra mile of figuring out how to navigate when he thought that Dave just understood, hey, I got this. He went the extra mile in every possible way. Letterman went the extra mile in doing a great show. Yeah. And I think it, it was a great lesson for me that you don't stand by the work alone. It's, it's, it's a political business. And yeah, it is a political business, especially and, and, when you're, you're and, answerable to 200 stations and you have a corporate boss, a corporate entity yeah, and Dave running was, your company. And, it's, it's, and Dave was the kind of guy who was just he did a great show, but he was not the kind of guy who liked to shake hands and shake corporate hands and talk to affiliates and do everything he could to make them feel like a million bucks. The people who are writing the check, the sponsors. He was a guy who just stayed in his own box, and he was a. He was also, in many ways, I think, shy that way too. But that hurt him because Lena was the kind of guy who was, you know, bring all the sponsors in. I'll shake hands. I'll take pictures. I'll sign autographs. I'll do whatever. And I'll I think ne- I'll never forget a, 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 something Letterman said to me, which kind of always to me describes Jay Leno and his his personality and and the kind of guy he was. I remember once talking about car collections. And Letterman has a wonderful collection, at least when I knew him, had a great collection of, of very sophisticated, sleek, you know, Italian, German sports cars. And, you know, he had the, the Cary Grant car from To Catch a Thief. And, you know, had beautiful, beautiful cars. And I once asked him about Leno's collection, and he said, Leno has parade cars. <laughs> And to me, it just, it's, it's so perfectly, you know, and I remember once seeing Jay Leno on, on Victory Boulevard in the Valley, riding around, waving at people in his Stanley Steamer car, and, you know, <laughs> it was always just, like, that's what he was, where Letterman would, you know, have, get down low, pull his baseball hat, and didn't want to recognize anybody. Jay so, was very extroverted, and, and, and Jay's, Jay's a great comic. Yeah, great comic. Works about 200, 250 dates a year. So take me just, I know we don't have, I mean, we could be here forever talking about this one segment of history. But just if you can, take me back to the moment when Dave and your show realized, holy shit, we've lost the Tonight Show. What the fuck are we going to do here? I I I never had that that feeling. I know Letterman did. I mean my my feeling was we're going to do this show somewhere. If we have to do it at 12:30, we could do it at 12:30. We can continue. I never felt like there would be no David Letterman's 
presence on, on, on network television. I mean, I always thought that, that, that he was safe and secure. But, I mean, the guy was basically, he was grooming himself for over a decade to take the chair of his idol. You don't find out one day that you've lost your dream and you can never get it back and you still have to go to work every day no. and do shows. How, how did, that was the hard part. How did I, he I handle think, that? I think you hit it on the head. I think the hard part was knowing that you didn't get it and we still had to go in night in and night out and do a good job for the network that just fucked you. I mean, that was all, that was the difficult thing. I think, you know, from all reports and, and recollections, I remember Dave being very, you know, stressed for a long time about it, but I don't, I don't think he ever got to the point of, of true desperation. But it was just, you know, there was that moment where you thought, why am I doing such a great show for these fucks who don't recognize what we're doing? And that was hard. That was always very difficult. And so, and as a result, he used to put up. We, we did a whole thing where we'd make fun of Warren Littlefield and give him the. He was the president of the network at the time, and you know, make him the employee of the week. And we would, you know, we were always on that case. <laughs> and the move to CBS that opening night in that theater, that first show. I know Dave had a reputation of never being a hundred percent happy mm-hmm. with a show or how things were always felt like hey i could have done this better i could have done that better but take me after the show that first show do you remember like how he was feeling i think he felt great i i i remember it being emotional i think it was a very emotional night for everybody involved uh there was a sense of great reward great relief um and it was it was very positive because he he really grew into the role and and i think and 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 i remember a conversation that we had and we were talking about how the new show would be different from the late night show and i said you know the late night show was about failure we celebrated failure on that show if we had a magician on who screwed up it would be the best thing that could ever happen to us that was gold on that show if we had an animal act on and the animal, you know, and the monkey started <laughs> chasing after Letterman, that was the greatest moment ever for us. And and that's what made that show different from everything else. You know, we never stopped tape. We never retook anything. And I think when we went to the Sullivan Theater and CBS, we realized we have to mature. We have to do a, a bit different of a show. And it became, you know, we're, we're grown up now. Tell me why Dave seamlessly made the transition to late night at 11.30, 7 million people a week. Yet somebody who we all know, brilliant, and have a lot of respect for, Conan O'Brien, made the jump to 11.30 to a time slot that had been protected for over 30 years where Dave... There was no talk show there. What do you think it is that you know, is the it's, difference? It's, it, it's, you know, I'm looking at the picture of Muhammad Ali on your wall. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like comparing Muhammad Ali to Jerry Cooney. You know, it's, 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 you know, Letterman is the greatest, I think even more so than Carson. 
he's the greatest to do what he he ever did. He would he in, invented you know electronic communications for an entire generation. They they grew up with with you know him doing it was basically a video funhouse what he was doing, and as much as I respect Conan as as a writer and a comedic visionary, I just don't think he was half the performer that David Letterman was. Do you think if Conan were sitting here, he would say the same thing? Sure, sure. I think I think Conan would recognize. I think Conan would recognize the genius of Letterman. I don't know how. I don't, and I don't even know the answer to explain why he failed at the Tonight Show. I I, I don't quite know. Uh, but I did see Letterman adapt to an eleven thirty time slot. I saw Letterman morph from from a niche performer to to the big room. You know, he he grew very well into it. And I don't know if 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 Conan necessarily had that same path, that that growth path that Letterman had. Uh, that's not to say what he did wasn't fantastic. I mean, I I I love Conan's work. Now I always saw you uh, as an amazing face. Of the Letterman show, I mean, I don't think there was anybody that I knew in the business that didn't love to hang out with Morty, that didn't love to have conversations with Morty, that didn't love to spar a little bit and argue over why a guest couldn't get the show at a certain time. I always love a good argument. And sometimes you'd win, many times you'd lose, but... There wasn't anybody that didn't love it. But then it came to an end. And when it was coming to an end, you know, sometimes you can see things coming. Sometimes you can't see things coming, like Leno coming in and hiding in a closet. Could you see your tenure there coming to an end? Or were you, like, totally stunned when it all I think went you're, down? I think you're always totally stunned. I think that's just the nature of of the knockout punch. You're you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be dazed a little bit. And the reason why I want to talk about this because of our audience, it's really important, is that a lot of people listening, uh, if you are in our, our business or in any business, you get the shit kicked out of you, and you get the shit kicked out of you daily or monthly or yearly or even one big time and. And sometimes you're sitting in the fetal position on the floor doing that thing that Curly did around in circles mm-hmm. in the Three Stooges with a shot in your hand wondering what's going to be next. And I think it's important for our audience to hear, like, I'm, you know, let's face it. I don't even, Normally at the end of these podcasts I talk about somebody's lowest moment mm-hmm. and, and, and how they handled it. Clearly... That had to be one of the lowest moments of your professional life. So how did you handle it, and how did you, you know, figure it out and come back so strong? You know, saying I, I, I handled it by not taking it personally, even though it changed the course of my entire life. It was it was very interesting time because I was I always looked at myself as being defined by being the producer of that show. Uh, having a great job in New York City to really be, you know, between Saturday Night Live and Letterman, that was the top of the heap in, in New York at the time. It was, you know, pre John Stewart and pre Colbert. It was, you know, we were the only two games in town. And there was a great heady feeling about that. So 
getting fired from that position, your life changes as well as your professional life. And you know something, I was ready for, for a life change. You know, I was in my 40s, I was still a bachelor. You know, I always wanted kids and it, it kind of forces you because that's a lifestyle, a job like that, and those are young men's jobs. Uh, you have to commit completely to those. And I think that's part of the problem with a lot of the shows that are on the air now that the hosts don't commit completely, the, the producers all want to get home and have real lives. Well, you know, the writers on The Letterman Show would be there all night. The bookers, we'd uh, drop, a guest would drop out at the last minute. They'd be hustling all over town you know, at, at all hours to, to, to fill those holes. Uh, it's a lifestyle. It becomes a lifestyle. So that day, who tells you? Letterman. So Letterman, he calls you into his office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, we want to make a change. You know, can't argue the point. It, it was, it wasn't confrontational. It wasn't. It was. I was. I was stunned by the punch. Obviously, I'm but here, then again, I'm you look back and you go, "All right." I look at that same picture of Muhammad Ali standing over. Who was that? Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston. Yeah, of course you know that. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Leifer took it. I do know that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Bangor, Maine. Sonny Liston might have been. <laughs> Sonny Liston might have been stunned to shit, but you know something. Afterwards, no, he, he wasn't realized, stunned because he took a dive. Yeah, oh, that's true. Afterwards, he thought, you know, maybe I didn't train the way I should have trained. Maybe I was a little old. Maybe this, that. You know, you see all the writing on the wall after you get knocked out. Yeah. Well, you're telling me the story, like I, like I'm getting emotional because I hear the story and I think to myself, like. If, you know, basically the guy who walks on water in late night comes and sit across from me and says, we're making a change. First of all, you know how tough it is for him to walk in mm -hmm. and have that conversation. I don't think I could, it literally, if I had the the wind knocked out of me, I don't think I could say anything if I wanted to oh, say Oh, you're full of baloney. You know why you're full of baloney? Why? Because you've been fired by many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and 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 you know, to be a, a, an effective manager, you have to look at these clients as children. These are your family. That's that's you know, that's what they say about the difference between a manager and an agent. You I know, thought it was five percent. You get to know the manager's uh, five percent. Yeah, those were the days. Those were the days. You know, you get to know the manager's family. They really are part of your family, so you, you know exactly what it's like. Yeah, it's a kick in the stomach, and then you get over it. It's a you little bit lower. It's a little bit lower into yeah, the left. That's true. The kick. But you get up. You pick you yourself get, up. And, you do uh, get up. You know, the, the, the good thing about it is, and, and, and the strange thing for me. I never I thought I you were going in that direction. Man. And, and I don't know if it holds true for you with the clients that have fired you. I still love watching him. There was never a day that I stopped respecting him as, as, as a, a comedian and a host. He was always the gold standard and never, you know, getting fired from that show never Never shook my respect for him as a performer. Got it. And after that day, when you walked out of that office, how many times have you spoken to him since? Never. Never. No, not a word. Have not you a word. Have you I often think about the moment if I ever did, but no, not really. I haven't talked to him at all. Got it. No. That's got to be like a. 
it, like you say, certain things do hang with you. And with me, certain things hang with me as well. But uh, you're right in that uh, you never want to be defined by it. And I think about my life and, you know, and, and my career up to this point, And if it ends tomorrow or whatever it is, I always wonder, because you don't, you don't see, you're like an anorexic looking in a mirror and saying you're fat. When you're, at least I don't know how the people feel who are uh, listening, or, but you, you just never feel like you really know your place. You mm-hmm. think you know your place, but you never really know until all of a sudden you call up a guy like Robert Morton and say, will you do this show? And he says, of course I'll do the show. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe I, maybe I am still uh feeling and it's the same with you like when you got taken down or whatever you you lost that gig probably you might not have known your place in the business no you don't know your place i i i i think i i viewed where i was at 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 a higher level than i might have been you know you you often lose sight of the fact that the show is about him not about me the reason that show is successful has nothing to do with anything i did it's all him it's all his vision. It's all, you know. It all came came from the the top. Well, I think that and, you, I think you were great at executing that vision. So I, I I would say that. No, the whole everybody was, and that was the magic of the team. But but, you know, you don't leave there and think let's anal- I'm the guy let's that a- did let's it. An- I'm- let's analyze something, okay? Shall we? Sure, Barry. Let's analyze the facts. Can I lie on your couch for this? I'd love you to lie I'm on good. the couch. Mm-hmm. All right. When you left. How many people were watching the show every night? Well, you know that. Uh, Just to answer the question. You know, I don't know. I honestly don't know. About, Four million. Uh, about five to six million people okay, were watching five to the six show. Million, yeah. How many people are watching the show now? Two million. Okay. So. But it, then again, that you know that believe does that only that's ha- because I left there. No, no, no it's that, not because you no, left. That, but what it, I'm saying is, there's a style to how a show goes, and it was this show from when you were there until when you left. I may be wrong. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But when you have a team together, and Letterman always was very loyal to this team mm-hmm. and whatever, there's a trajectory. Except, except you. And there's a trajectory to that loyalty that sure. happens with the thing. And sometimes, I don't know why it is in the world or how it is, when changes are made, sometimes the trajectory doesn't stay where it's going. And you might not think you had a big impact on things, but talent relations is big and, and how things are. And there were certain people that didn't do the show that maybe would have done the show had you been there. A certain instinct. One of my favorite stories. It was after I got fired, uh, CBS gave me an office at BlackRock, which is the CBS headquarters on 6th Avenue. Well, you produced some shows there. For You did the Bonnie, uh, Bonnie show, didn't you? Yeah, I you? did some other shows. But, 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 but essentially, I was you know, asked to leave, and CBS set me up with an office just as a transition. You know, it was part of the, the exit that, that I negotiated. And they put me on a floor, and they used to call it the bad boy floor <laughs> because it was usually the offices were people who got fired from jobs. <laughs> and I remember at the time the head of CBS News had just been fired, so he had an office down the hall. All the high-profile people that got fired at the network. How come when office. I got fired, I didn't get an office? The bad boy floor, they used to call it. And in the lobby of that building was a restaurant called the China Grill. I think it might still be yeah. there. And I remember having lunch there alone one day with a magazine. And I'm sitting at lunch, and I see Les Moonves and Bill Cosby walk in. 
Les and Moonves being the president of CBS at the time. Yeah, now the chairman of CBS. Now the chairman of CBS. And Bill Cosby. And Bill, Cosby Bill Cosby needing Cosby. no introduction. Well, but but it, it was when Bill Cosby was going back to doing a series and, for CBS. And Les Moonves did something at the time that had been never been done before in the history of scripted television. He gave Cosby a 44-episode pay-or-play guarantee. It's oh, incredible. So the two of them are having lunch, so it was hard to avoid them. So I went over and said hello, and this was you know, maybe a week after I, I left the Letterman show. And Cosby says, I can't believe you're leaving that show. That's like the daddy leaving the nest. I gotta, I'm never going to do that show again. You were the heart and soul. I mean, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty nice in front of Les Moonves, the head of CBS. Cosby saying all these great things about me. He goes, it won't be the same. I'm never going to do it, blah, blah, blah. Cut to, I swear on my life, not two nights later, I turn on the Letterman show. Tonight, Bill Cosby. <laughs> And I'm thinking, that's show business right there. That says it all. That's awesome. Isn't that funny? Before we move on to some other stuff, I just want you to share with me um, the transition now. You're in this office, the bad boy floor, the floor of the fire that dejected employees. What's your next move? What are you planning? What's How do you, how do you figure you're going to land on your feet again? And who take has the balls to take the step forward and reach out to the guy who in probably in your you. mind you have kryptonite you're holding but you're no i'll tell you i i i, I and you know it's it's not necessarily the most popular person in show business to 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 praise but michael ovitz who was the chairman of of creative artists uh was a great champion and a when I walked out of that office with Letterman, I made my first call to Michael Ovitz, and his response to me was, "Great, we got you out of there." <laughs> and you know, whether he meant he and Letterman got me out of there, I don't know quite how it, how because he was Letterman's agent. Yeah. Uh, but he had left CAA and was was now running Disney. Was the president of of Disney, and he had always talked to me about coming there, and you know. Not, not that I'm anywhere in the league of, of Lorne Michaels. He always said, I want to make you the Lorne Michaels of ABC. And that was, you know, the one thing holding me back was that I was at, at the Letterman show. So when I got out, Ovitz was very, very kind and offered me this, this situation. Uh, the thing that kind of got in the way was I was dating a woman at the time who was then the president of ABC. And Ovitz was always, you can't do this. It'll look like she's giving you a sweetheart deal, blah, 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 blah. And she really had, it, it, it predated her even going to ABC that, that I had those discussions. So we waited a year or so, and then I got uh, an overall deal at ABC. And, and it really was Ovitz, and Ted Harbert was, was a, a great Ted Harbert, who's now the chairman of NBC. Um, so what were some of the first things you did at A? Wasn't there something called the Downer Channel with Steve? Was that Steve? No, Mark? that was later. I, I When I got to ABC, uh, I did, I had a two-year deal there. I did one show that got on the air. We did, I think, 13 episodes, which was a, a lame-ass sitcom with Tim Curry and Annie Potts. 
called Tim, Over the Top. It was a horror. It was it was Tim Curry from Rocky Horror. It wasn't a horror show. show. I shouldn't say that. The, the the high point of the show, and and he doesn't mention it, and I I think he struck it from his credits. Uh, Steve Carell was was one of the stars of the show, and I remember finding, you know, seeing him for the first time, and he came in and auditioned for for the producers, and he was just brilliant. It was just brilliant and. We called him back the next day, and we wanted him to do the same audition. It was that entertaining. Wow. And he was like, I always wondered why you were bringing me back the next day to do the same thing. Yeah. How uh, how did you get involved? Now, to me, one of the greatest things that happened, I, I guess I wasn't really looking in terms of time because I, you know, I was just observing from afar, but you got involved with Chris Rock. uh, uh Chris Short, Rock, I, 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 I obviously I, talk about the gold standard. He's like the gold standard. So you leave Letterman, and within a few years, yeah, you're doing but, but some it, episodes it, it, with Chris Rock. Yeah, but it wasn't that simple. It was, it, 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 and I, once again, it's 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 a bad call on my part. Uh, I had left Letterman, and Chris Rock at the time was really, you know, didn't have a very high profile. He was a stand-up. He had done Saturday Night Live unsuccessfully. He was back doing clubs and you know was getting on it at midnight at, at 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 showcase clubs and really wasn't and you know Chris Albrecht came in and saw the potential and Chris Albrecht now the president of Stars and formerly former former president of any chairman of HBO and he came in and saw the potential and I was approached by HBO and and my management Three Arts at the time still they came to me and said, do you want to produce Chris Rock's show? And I kind of took offense to it. I was like, how can I go from producing David Letterman on NBC? And this was before <laughs> HBO was HBO. I mean, they had done a bunch of specials. and comedy, But they had, there was no Sopranos. There was no, you know, serious business there. It was Chris was just beginning there. And I was kind of offended. And they said, will you consult? And I said, yeah, I'll consult on it. So, you know, I came in as, as, as a consultant. And, uh, and, and uh, Louis C.K. was writing on the show. Louis or? was a writer. Louis, Louis had been a writer on Letterman. Yeah. And got fired. Yep. Then he and went I'll, to Conan. And I'll never forget. After he got fired, he he walked into my office, and the head writer usually does, you know, picks up the options and decides who's going to stay, who's going to go. Letterman and Edward. and he threw a stack of material about two and a half inches high, and he said, "This is all the stuff I wrote that didn't get on." I. I wish I still had it. <laughs> I wish I still had it. Uh, it's almost like he doesn't put this on his credits either. The first show I ever produced, I, I, I was at Letterman, and I took a leave of absence to do a show for Cinemax. It was the Max Headroom show. Yes. And it was a talk show hosted by this this creature. This television with a head inside it. Was, it was, it was a, a bad idea, and but it was a great opportunity. And uh, one of the writers on that was Larry David. And I remember I still have somewhere, I'm not sure where, but I know I still have material that he wrote that never got on the air. That he threw at you. I remember <laughs> he, he didn't throw it at me, but I remember he did one piece that everybody was shocked by. He, he wrote a, a piece, uh, uh, Max Headroom as a Holocaust Survivor. <laughs> and I know I have it somewhere, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't brag about that. Now, we worked together on a show that was uh, an interesting show that had never been done before, never been done since, sort of a letterman for sports called More Sports with Jay Moore. And my biggest memory of the show, or one of the biggest memories, is how 
your relationship with Jay was and how you guys worked together and how he had never really done a talk show before. And you were like, again, like the master. And Jay, you know, has a way of having no filter. And I remember he really, really pissed you off one day. And you called me up because I was <laughs> executive producing it too. And you said, uh, Barry, uh, um, I'm not coming in today. I said, oh, well, you know, yeah, I hope you're feeling better. No, Barry, I'm, I'm not coming in tomorrow. Oh, well, I, you know, it, if you're sick, don't worry. Take as much time as you Barry, I am not coming back in. I said, what are you talking about? What happened? Your client, Jay Moore. You got to straighten that guy out. He offended me. And I don't work anywhere where I'm offended. <laughs> it sounds like me. I don't. I, once again, I have no <laughs> recollection. <laughs> so I had to call Jay up, and I said, Jay, uh, I don't know what you did or whatever, but I think you're going to have to. And I remember where we met. He came. I, I had lunch with him at that Grub restaurant. Yeah. But when I did Jay's podcast, I, I talked about this, and he had no, he had no recollection of it ever <laughs> happening. I said, Jay, I walked out on the show. He goes, no, you didn't. We never had a fight. I said, Jay, I'll tell you where we ate to, to patch it up. I told him the whole story. Yeah, and I remember you guys meeting at that, that place, and I was like wondering to myself, okay, what's happening? Because I, I felt like if I went, it would be bad, so I just had you guys sitting together. But another thing that happened there that I want to talk about, that I, I want you to answer what you do in these situations. This is, was a shocker. We had a writer on the show who was a very famous, uh, well, a comedian who had a long career. He was an actor in many, many shows, and he also was a stand-up and was one of the first white comedians to transfer over to black audiences, did the Apollo. So what happens is this exec, whatever you call him, the head writer of the Moore Sports Show, he has the thought process behind him. Listen, I'm going to give my wife a job, and she'll be like a talent coordinator, wrangling people, going to the cars, taking them out of cars, doing whatever. She was rude one day, and he called her a c well, I don't remember this. It's amazing. He I don't said, remember any of this. This is the first time I've said the C word on this podcast, so I'm sorry if I've offended anybody, but I'm, I'm saying what he said. And this was an amazing thing that happened, and it was a situation where on any given occasion, that guy would be fired who said the C word, but he wasn't fired. And the guy who was the head writer didn't stand up and say, hey, listen, it's either him or me. And it remained, and there was that tension throughout the writer's room and everywhere around because here a guy had to work in a place where a guy called his wife the C word. Why do you think something like that could transpire and take place? And today, if that were to happen, let's say in one of the shows that you're like Lopez tonight, can you imagine if, like, somebody's wife, what would happen? It would be automatically firing, right? First of all, you know, it's, it's, I would never allow a husband and wife or, you know, nepotism to me is, is horrible. I, I, I have Except no, at ABC. I have no tolerance for that. <laughs> no, but I, I had nothing to do with that. Um, so you would never as, hire a as husband? As far as, as, as using that word, this day and age, you know, th there was a time when that word was thrown around. There was a time when, when, when producers and executives and talent did some crazy things, which now you could get sued for. 
Absolutely. Now you could lose a career for. Take me through Mind Dementia a little bit because this is a show that for some reason um, did really, really well. Amazing ratings. Comedians violently opposed the show. Comedians violently opposed to Carlos Mencia. And here you were at a show that was doing well in the ratings, but you're hanging on to like a life raft that's uh that's being punctured. Well, you know, it was it was in we did four seasons. I know. You know so we, 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 we did seventy five some odd shows. So it was a pretty successful run by by Very know, successful. All, all standards. He basically was wonderful to work with. I I've, I don't think I've ever worked with a host that worked as hard and had as as clear a vision as what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do. Uh, tremendously talented. I think he got caught up in a situation where comedians had accused him of stealing material. And I think, you know, whether he did or not, I, I'm not to say, because I don't know any of the people that he was accused of stealing from. I, I you know, I... I didn't pay much attention to that. Uh, I always knew that he was a really good comedian and never needed to borrow material from anybody else. Always had brilliant original ideas of his own. Was real, could really stand up on his own. And I think it was just a, a case of, you know, he was accused of all this stuff. And when you're on Comedy Central and Comedy Central makes its its lifeline is is stand-up comedy i don't think it's 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 as if a, a, a wolf blitzer was accused of plagiarizing news on cnn there's no tolerance for it and i think it was the same thing with mencia i think he was accused of doing these things and comedy central couldn't jeopardize their relationship with other comedians and and the community so they had no choice and it was it did do well and you know, we went off the air. You know, we were doing really good numbers. No, it was really, really good yeah. numbers. And you also... I mean, not great numbers, but really good. You also did something recently that I, I had a lunch with you, ironically, at Morton's. It was interesting when you pulled out your credit card and said, you know, Robert Morton, and you were signing a check for Morton's. Never got me in the restaurant. Probably not. So... You got the gig. You took over Lopez tonight when things were not going as well as the network wanted to. And one of the things that blew me away when I met with you, I said, why are you taking the gig, Robert? I don't get it. And you said, Barry, it's a great gig. I said, why is it a great gig? I said, I love George, and I think he's talented, and I think he does a great job. But I said, why is it a great gig? You said, Barry, number one, TBS, they take care of you. They're great people. Uh, They're always paying people fairly and above more than fair. Um, If I go into this gig and it works, I'm going to be a hero. If it doesn't work, no one can ever blame me because... It wasn't working before I came in. Mm -hmm. And then you said something that blew me away. I said, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get to the offices at Lopez tonight? And this is what you said. Well, first of all, Barry, there's these cubicles 
where they're very high and people can't see each other. I'm going to rip those out. I'm just going to cut them in half so everybody can see each other. And the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get all the great photographs of Lopez with all his great guests, and I'm going to have them framed all over the theater, all over that area where the writers are in the hallways. So when people are walking around, they have a sense of pride, and they feel like they're working on a show that means something, and they have a sense of community. And I thought that was really, really interesting, because normally you would think a showrunner or executive producer is going to go in, hire a writer here, do this, that. That was the main thing. Well, it's funny, and, and, you know, in hindsight, maybe I was wrong, but when I took over that show, I didn't fire anybody. I kept the entire staff. I, I, I thought that if I fired one person, everybody would be jumpy. Everybody would think that they're next. So I, I went in there, and look, nobody likes firing people. It's, it's not easy. It's not fun. Uh, I always have a strange reaction when I do fire people, and it's a nervous reaction but I, I usually find myself laughing and it's horrible I have fired people who, who have been so desperate and I, I always laugh and I always do it with an associate in the room and when I was at Letterman there was one woman named Jude Brennan who's the executive producer now and she would know when I was about to break up laughing in the middle of every firing and she'd always pick up and I'd kind of cover my mouth <laughs> it was just dumb and I, I thought I didn't like firing people. I wish more clients would laugh when they fired me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like firing people. I didn't think it was necessary on, on the Lopez show. And I was willing to work with everybody and, and make them better. It's hard to do when you're doing a nightly show, but, you know. Cool. Let's talk about some holy shit moments. <laughs> um, let's pretend you're writing your book. Tell me one story of your career that would be the highlight chapter that anybody who heard the story would be like, holy shit, I cannot believe this story. Uh, showbiz and non-showbiz? Whatever it is. One of the perks of being in show business is you find yourself at places that you'd never imagine yourself to be. You know, the first time I, I had dinner at the White House was, was, was fun you realize, what the fuck am I doing <laughs> at the White House? And you realize you have free reign. You could walk into every room and sit on every piece of furniture <laughs> and lift up the cushions. And <laughs> it, it was, Did you find the spare changes? Oh, yeah. It was very heady. It was, it was, it was a, a, an incredible feeling. And to go to a, it was at a state dinner, and to be able to walk up to, and, and you can just walk up to the vice president or the president and start talking to them. There's no line. There's no. It's it's. You're a guest at the dinner party, and they're a guest at the party. Anyway, that was. But but the moment that I'm I'm leading to is, you find yourself at these events, and I was at an, an event. Uh, a friend of mine, who I'm sure is a friend of yours, who produced Comic Relief, Pat Lee. Of course. Pat Lee is a wonderful woman. Amazing. A great producer, and she invited me to a fundraiser for the Clintons for Bill Clinton. And it was at Ron Burkle's house in, in Beverly Hills. And she was very active in a woman's political uh, uh, committee. And she invited me to be her guest at this, this event. And she had a private photo with, with Hillary and Bill. So the four of us are posing for this picture in his fancy library. And I find myself 
standing next to Hillary, and then Bill is on the other side of Hillary, and Pat is next to Bill on the other side. And, you know, what do you do when you're posing for a group picture? You usually put your arm around or behind <laughs> the person next to you. And yeah. I felt that was inappropriate, being that it was the first lady. So I just kind of put my hand behind her, <laughs> not touching her. <laughs> so my hand is, is behind her, and just as the shutter is about to, to, to go off, I feel Bill Clinton reach around and push my hand away. <laughs> And you see my face on the photograph because he had just, and I don't know if he was fucking with me. I don't know if he thought I was copying a feel from his wife, but he pushed my hand. And I'm thinking the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the free world, just thought I was feeling up his wife. It was so surreal. And at that moment, I thought, look at the world. Look at where we are. Look at what we do. How ridiculous is this? It was great. It was just a great moment, and I have the photo. That's awesome. It just well, my face is like I'm, I look like a deer in headlights. I really do. It's so odd. Tell me your proudest professional moment. You know, you win an Emmy award. It's 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 you you, you you're, it's a proud moment. Uh, hearing your show announced, and you go up on stage and get the statue, and and better than just getting the statue. And it's it's funny every time I watch any award show or look at at the, the trades and, and or, or look at the, the blogs and see pictures of, of the parties afterwards, walking into any of the given parties that they have on Emmy night, holding an award is probably, you know, the greatest professional moment for me. You know? Now, we, uh, other people downplay it. I, I, I think they're full of shit. Just being nominated is not enough. You need the statue. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thank you. I'm sorry. I've been nominated yeah, not one. from this office. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, didn't win that year. Amazing race for the 17th time in a row won, but that's yeah. okay. What, that Wayne Brady, were you on when they won the Emmy or no? I had been fired from that show. But you were still but eligible for that. I was fired, but my show, one of the shows I produced, was the nominated show. The running theme of this podcast is called Fired. <laughs> so, uh, so Happens to all of us. Wait, but you were still eligible for the Emmy. What you do is when you nominate a show for an Emmy, you submit no, I know. one episode of the show. And it was your show and that you produced. the episode that was submitted was a show that I Which produced. Which means you were eligible when they yeah. won, yeah, so I you won an Emmy for that. Yeah. yeah. Were you there in the crowd? Uh-huh. Did yeah, you go on there. stage? Yeah, I did. Of course I did. I remember Bernie I remember Bernie telling me something about like he was on stage literally about to say some kind of a speech. Bernie Brillstein, one of the greatest managers of all time, represented everybody from Belushi to Lorne Michaels and represented Wayne. And he told me like he's got his Emmy, he's about to go up to the mic, and literally Wayne just grabs the mic away from him and just he didn't get a chance to say anything. True story. <laughs> Absolutely true. It was uh, it was a fun moment for me, because I, and if you look at it, I, I I have it on tape. I'm just gloating. I'm just I've got this shit eating grin on my face. Like, ha! Huh, you guys fire me, and my show wins an Emmy. Did you hug Wayne that night? No. <laughs> no. Oh. I don't man. think I ever hugged him. I tell you, man, you're you're unbelievable. It was funny, though. It was funny. All right, so and it, and and the fun part about it is, it looks like a real Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> On your bookshelf, it it doesn't look any different than the real Emmy. 
It's well, kind of fun. I, I think it's a real. You could fool. You just turn it around, and people don't know what show you want it for. Tell me a comedian who you booked, or you authorized a book on any incarnation of Letterman show, where you're like, this guy is an automatic. I am so excited. This is going to be one of the best stand-up sets in the history of our show. And the guy went on and laid an egg. Uh, the only real eggs that I can remember, the only real egg laid by somebody who was great was Kinnison. And he was fucked up. But I remember him once coming on, and you know, I mean, we all loved Sam Kinison. He was, he was a visionary in what he did. He he had a style and and an attitude and a but, point of view like none other. But you you kept that on, and you'd love to see those shows. But the oh, we Bill, edited that. We edited out the stand up. I thought the Bill Hicks was the one you edited out. We edited that one on, but we won. I remember once pulling out an entire stand up that that Kinison did because he was so fucked up. I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember, uh, and before we get into the last thing, I was there. Dave Chappelle was getting his first shot on the Letterman show. And I walk up there, and he's already in the dressing room. For those of you who don't know, the Letterman dressing rooms in the Ed Sullivan Theater for the comedians are very small. I mean, they're probably maybe 8 feet by 10 feet or 6 feet by 10 feet. And they have like a locker where you put your clothes and a little desk with a mirror with the lights and a small couch. Very small. And I get there and Dave is so happy because this is his first appearance on The Letterman Show. He's so excited. And he's there early and I got there early. And, you know, he's wearing this, you know, sweatshirt from NYU. He's wearing some nice jeans and some nice sneakers. And... We're just having a blast. And then you walk in the room and you're like, hey, you ready, buddy? And Dave's like, yeah, man, I'm ready. It's like, so, uh, you know, what are you wearing tonight? Because, you know, Robert just naturally thought in the locker were the clothes. He's like, what do you mean, man? He said, what are you wearing? He said, I'm wearing this. I just got this new sweatshirt from NYU. I got the jeans and the sneakers. This is what I'm wearing. And you looked at him and said, no, you're not. You're not wearing that. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? I'm. This is what I'm wearing. I, I, I bought it. No, you're not. You're not. You're not wearing that. You're not going on the show tonight if you wear that. I'm not letting you on. I'll just cancel your show and put something else on. I don't believe that. Oh, this is true. And I was, and I was in shock, and Dave was in shock, and, and he's like, what are you, what are you talking? What am I gonna do? And you're like, here, man. And you took off your jacket, your sports jacket. You said, try this on. See if this fits you. And he put on your sports jacket, and it fit him. And he's like, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to go down the wardrobe. We're going to get you a shirt, any kind of shirt. Pick out any kind of shirt you want. You wear this and the jacket because Johnny would never allow a comedian on who didn't wear a sports jacket and I am not about to let any comedian on this show with Dave who doesn't respect the art form, respect the craft, respect late night. 
And everybody who does this show will wear a jacket and look nice. That's fiction. I never said that. That is not fiction. And if you watch... I like the story, If you watch Dave Chappelle's first Letterman show, you'll see him wearing your jacket. I've got to watch it now. I've got to watch it. All right, so... How I ever let a comic wear my jacket, that's... See, right off the bat, it's, it's, it sounds like fiction. Not fiction. So, do I look like a guy who would lie? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, last question. I want you to give advice, firstly, to a young executive out there in any line of work. How do they go from being in college, wanting to own a candy store to doing something that they really dream about, really special, and going for it and getting to a point and a level where you are today. And lastly, a young comedian, sketch artist, anybody performing out there that's working in the smoky clubs at 1 o'clock in the morning, how do they get the attention of somebody like you and move the needle and get to the next level? On the executive level, I think you... If you're not the actual talent, don't think of yourself as the talent and and have a respect for talent. And I think, obviously, the, who am I to judge the problems of, of networks and, and, and cable operations? But I think the biggest problem is that executives don't let writers and creators and directors do what they do best. They know. They know. Vince Gilligan knows what that show is going to be. And I think AMC probably had the good sense to let him do what he does, as I know HBO does with, with its people, and I know that FX is, is famous for it. Louis C.K. has a vision. FX is smart enough to, to let Louis do what he does. And I think once an executive considers themselves creative, it's, it's, it's gone. You're, you're a buyer. Once again, going back to the retail business, you know, the, the the buyer at Bloomingdale's doesn't tell Ralph Lauren, we don't like the buttons you have on the new jackets. Change the buttons. Use use brass buttons instead of, of... Ralph doesn't take notes like that. He's a creator. He's a designer. And I think it's the same thing in, in this business. So I think executives have to know their place. They're the buyers. Now, I never have a qualm with, with an executive saying, I don't think this is going to work for our audience. I don't think this is going to work for our advertisers. It is a commercial medium. Uh, but once they say this doesn't work creatively, all bets are off. And I think as far as, as, as if you are the artist and you are the creator, you just have to do it. If you're a writer, you have to always write. If you're a comedian, you always have to tell jokes. Wherever it is, you have to have that opportunity to always tell jokes. And it was one of the things I learned from Letterman. You never miss that opportunity. Don't be preachy. Don't take yourself too seriously you know if you're doing a talk show if you're doing a performance on on a program you better have the goods and that comes from from writing and performing and doing what you say you are if you're an actor you have to act wherever you can wow this has been really great very inspirational oh, uh, God. it's been an honor to have you here Thank and you, uh, it's an honor to be here on your big couch <laughs> <laughs> well thank to you. think that that Steve Coonan and Chris Albrecht. This 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 spitty microphone is the closest I've been to either of those. <laughs> well, that's going to change there after this podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you, everybody. Uh, you've been listening to another episode of Industry Standard with me, 
And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.